great to be here in Syracuse again, preaching for you. So this morning we're going to look at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and ask you to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 4. Our passage is page 1172 in the Black Bibles there in the, in the seats. But I think, you know, I think we're going to read the whole chapter just to get some context of what's going on. Because all of chapter 4 works together, right? It starts out at the beginning and then the second half of the chapter is really dependent on the first half of the chapter. So we'll read a little bit more than what's in the, in the bulletin. So anytime we get to read some more of the Bible, that's a good thing anyhow, right? So let's hear God's word for us this morning. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself... Also, he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, this I say, and I affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This is God's word for us this morning. And one of the things that you might have picked up on there as we went through the whole passage is the first half of the passage is all about love, right? And the second half of the passage is all about desire, all about what drives us, what motivates us. And I think it's kind of... I guess it's appropriate when we look at Ephesians chapter 4 and the second half of Ephesians chapter 4 that we reference a question or rather reference um, another book, namely one by Dostoevsky, The Brothers Karamazov, if you've ever heard of that, because that book actually uses Ephesians 4 and the imagery and the metaphor in Ephesians 4 to drive part of the narrative of that story. And what the way Dostoevsky uses Ephesians 4 is to highlight this difference between putting off the old man and putting on the new man as one that shows how we ought to serve one another. So back in book 6, chapter 3, here's a conversation of a Russian monk. He says this, For the world says, You have desires, and so satisfy them. For you have the same rights as the most rich and powerful. Don't be afraid of satisfying them, even multiply your desires. That is the modern doctrine of the world. In that, they see freedom. And what follows from this right of multiplication of desires in the rich, isolation and spiritual suicide. In the poor, envy and murder. For they have been given rights, but have not been shown the means of satisfying their wants." So really what's behind that, if you picked up on it, it's, it's the project of monasticism, right? We go away and we leave the world, we leave desire, and what winds up happening is we leave love behind as well, and we go seclude ourselves out into the wilderness because we see that desire drives us, it shapes us, it moves us, it makes us do sometimes really stupid things, right? There's a story in 2012 of a Chinese man who loved his girlfriend so much that he packaged himself up in a box and shipped himself to her. And so when she opened up the box, he was passed out in the box. He couldn't even say, I love you. Love does make us do some pretty crazy things, doesn't it? And that's what's behind monasticism, this idea that love shapes our desires and desire drives us to things that sometimes we wouldn't be comfortable acknowledging or admitting that we did or that we have. The arts display this as well, right? The plays like Romeo and Juliet, the the typical trope here is death for love. Love can take over what we do. And so the monastic answer is to kill love, right? If we kill love, if we kill desire, then we will kill desire and then we can live a holy and happy life. And sadly, I think this may be an answer among some folks in Reformed circles as well. 
kill the emotions, kill love, kill desire, and then we can live a life of holiness, a life of uh, godliness. But I think Paul's answer is different. And I think Ephesians 4 shows us that different answer. It's not about killing love, and it's not about killing desire. It's about redirecting them. It's about reshaping them, refocusing them, and asking the question and being introspective, what are my desires? What is my love? What do I love? So we come to Ephesians, and as I've already mentioned again and again, this is the primary message of Ephesians, and is found in chapter 4. It's about love. Throughout the book, Paul starts by showing the magnificent love of Jesus, and then he brings it down in chapter 4 to show you that because Jesus loves you so much, then you ought to love one another. That's the logic. That's how Paul's theology works. Because God loves you so much that he sent his son for you, then you ought to exhibit this in the lives of each other, in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, why would he do this in Ephesians? Well, quite simply, because the church in Ephesus had a problem. Like most churches in antiquity, I guess we could say like most churches generally, it had a problem of, of division and factions, right? In the Ephesian church, it was one of Jews and Gentiles. They couldn't seem to get along. This, we see it come up in Romans. We see it come up in Corinthians a little bit, right? But this idea of Jew and Gentile problems just perpetuates itself throughout churches in antiquity. And it's highlighted here in Ephesians. And so Paul wants to build them up to be unified and to live out the gospel. To show the world that there is no division between Jew and Gentile. And that they are one. They are united in Christ. So the first 16 verses here of chapter 4 shows us that our life in Christ is a life that ought to build up one another in humility, gentleness, and kindness. Or in other words... Our faith means that we ought to be more concerned with the people sitting around you than with you sitting in the pews. That's what it means. It means that because Jesus loves you so much and he gave himself up for you, then you ought to be concerned with all of the people sitting around you to be united, to be humble, and to build one another up in gentleness. And so now we come to Paul's exhortation to focus our own desires when we engage in this pursuit. So he shifts from love to desire. Paul begins to tie in the love story from earlier in verse 17. He says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their, of their minds. It sounds a lot like chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So now, chapter 4, we walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, because you already were told this earlier in chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So catch Paul's logic here for just a second. What he's saying is that you used to be walking on one path. 
right? And that path led to destruction. That path was death and dead in sins and unrighteousness. But God took you off of that path and he put you on another path. He made you a new creation so that you would walk in the good works which God has prepared for you beforehand. You've shifted paths. He picked you up and put you on a different one. So now that you're on this one, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Verse 17, in the futility of their minds. So he's already told us how to walk. Verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He laid that out for us. Humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, building one another up. He showed us how we're supposed to walk. And now, interestingly, catch this, he contrasts that with the walk of the Gentiles, a walk he's already told you that you're free from. Now, why do you suppose he says that, walking as the Gentiles walk? If you think about that for just a moment, what's the main issue, the main problem, the main schism going on in Ephesians? What is Paul primarily trying to address? It's Jew and Gentile relations, right? It's the problem that the Jews and Gentiles can't get along. And so he writes a letter and he's talking to two groups, Jews and Gentiles. To both of them, he says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. So what does that do to Gentiles sitting in the audience listening to this letter being read? What does it do to them? And secondly, what does it do to Jews? The implication being Jews can walk as Gentiles walk, right? You catch how Paul is using this language, how he's playing with boundaries. He's playing with stereotypes and such to bring about unity. In other words, what he's saying is Gentiles sitting here in the room listening to this letter, you're no longer Gentiles. Right? And Jews sitting here, you can walk as Gentiles if you want to pretend that you're just Jews, but you're no longer Jews. Together you are one in Christ. You're one in Christ. He's using the barriers and the boundaries that they've set up to promote his idea and to exhort them to be unified together. He's completely erasing the former lines of division, equating Gentiles in the congregation with Jews, but showing that Jews can equally fall prey to walking as the Gentiles walk. And so now he says, well, if you look out the window and you look at the Gentiles, what is it that they do? Why shouldn't we be walking as Gentiles walk? What's wrong with that path, per se? Well, he tells you, they walk with futility of mind, darkened in their understanding, or excluded from the life of God. And why is that? Because of the hardness of their heart. Now notice, Paul starts with the big picture, doesn't he? Now he'll get into practices pretty soon at the end of the chapter, but when he wants to introduce you to the walk of the Gentiles or the pathway that he's telling you not to get onto, he starts with a big picture by telling you kind of the paradigm, so to speak. They walk with futility of mind, darkened in their understanding. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what does that mean? Futility of mind. Sometimes when we have, when we read the Bible and when we interpret the Bible, 
we have a tendency, and that's to read words and read concept or kind of word constructions and think, oh, we already know what that means, and so we import a meaning into that, rather than looking at the whole letter. How has Paul been building this up to this point? So what is futility? Well, I think if we want to understand what he means by futility, we have to go back again to chapter 2, because chapter 4 and chapter 2 work together. Chapter 2, verse 11. How did they formerly walk? What was their former walk? What did it look like? It was according to the course of this world. It was according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, indulging in the lusts of our flesh. In other words... Their walk was centered and focused and directed on this world. They were told and directed what was good, pleasant, and worthy of worship by this world, by the prince of the power of the air, by the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, by the course of this world. In other words, this world was telling them what to love what to desire, what to seek, what to, thri- what to um, strive after. And Paul says, that's futile. It's futility. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's kind of like chasing after wind, right? Have you ever caught it? It's just going to keep telling you to go a little bit further and you'll get what you're looking for. And you never get it. It never satisfies, is what Paul's saying. What the world tells you to strive for, what the world tells you to seek after, it never delivers. It just keeps asking you to go a little bit further. It's futile. It never actually gives fulfillment. But now, he says, because they love the world due to their hardened hearts, they engage in a practice, a hardness or a callousness which was displayed in sensuality, he says, for the purpose of impurity with greediness. So what's sensuality? It's the pursuit of uninhibited pleasure. Just pursuing pleasure constantly. Pleasure of what, you could ask? Likely pleasure of the self. Whatever the world tells you is pleasurable. Seeking the self. Seeking self-growth and seeking the enthronement of the self. But he contrasts that with impurity, right? Or with purity, rather. He connects it with impurity. So purity in in first century Judaism and the time that Paul's writing, purity had everything to do with our relationship to God, right? If you were impure prior to Jesus, you couldn't go into the temple if you were ritually impure. You couldn't be in close connection with God. The people of Israel had to maintain purity so that God and His Spirit would remain in the land. Purity was all about relationship to God and seeing God as King and as holy and as perfect. And so Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 4, they formerly walked in a... I'm sorry, they, they were walking now... The Gentiles are walking in a way that is futile, that's chasing after the wind. It's all about uninhibited pleasure. It's all about doing whatever the world tells you is pleasurable. It's all about worshiping the self and the creature rather than the creator. Now, if you know your Paul, Pauline letters, you're probably picking up on something. He talks about that a lot. Worshiping the self 
and the creature rather than the creator. Paul says, don't walk like them because their hearts are hardened. Their eyes are darkened. But you, he says, you're different. You have been enlightened. You have been made alive. You see the difference. You see the two paths. You see pursuit. the pursuit of what the world tells you is pleasurable to just keep going is futile. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's going to keep delivering empty promises. So Paul has painted the picture pretty dark, right? He's given us a picture of the Gentiles and he's really made it kind of awful futility, hardness of heart, callousness, darkness of all of this stuff. And we sit here and we can almost shake our heads saying, yeah, right, right, right. They're pretty bad, right? What I think is interesting, though, is that Paul here at this point has not listed anything particular that they do. He hasn't said, don't walk like the Gentiles walk, because look at all of these examples. See how bad they are? They do all of these things. Rather, he gave us a framework, and he entitled that sensuality and impurity. Sensuality and impurity. And obviously, as we, as we read this paradigm, this framework, it makes us cringe a little bit, right? We say, absolutely not, Paul. We don't want to walk as the Gentiles walk. We don't want to walk in sensuality and impurity. But if Paul's offering a framework... A paradigm of pathways, right? Walk this way and not this way. What we notice is that it's all about desire. It's about what you desire. What is it that you're seeking after? Or, put another way, what do you want? What do you want? And what are you pursuing with everything that you have? Now, that's the big quick big picture that should force us to step back and ask ourselves some questions to say, have I been kind of tiptoeing on that pathway that the Gentiles are on? Maybe I don't do it all the way, but have I been just maybe veering off? If there's a fork in the road, I'll go over there for a little bit and then I'll swing back over on the path that I know to be the right path. What is it that I seek, that I love? What is it that I savor? And that I desire. It's easy to quickly say, right, God, Jesus, his kingdom. These are the things I love. These are the things I desire. But do our actions reflect that? When we make choices in life, those choices reflect our desire. What is it that drives our choice for, say, you know, what job to take? or, say, where to live, or what college to go to, or on and on and on, who to be friends with, all of these things, all of these choices that come up in our lives, what is it that drive us? Is it our pursuit of money? Is it our pursuit of, of a nice, beautiful home away from everyone else? Is it our pursuit of... of just happiness and fulfillment. Now, these things aren't bad in and of themselves, right? The world around us, though, will take these pursuits and it will try to make it frame our whole lives, make the pursuit themselves itself frame our whole life. The world around us always wants to drag us back to focus on ourselves, 
to focus on the worship of the self. And sometimes it starts with something that's not necessarily sinful, right? Financial well-being. It's not an evil thing. But when it replaces Christ and his kingdom, or when it causes us to not live out the first half of Ephesians 4, that idea of humility and gentleness and kindness, then it quickly turns into a slew of evil things. And we're challenged by Jesus in Mark chapter 10. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You see there, Jesus is keying in on that idea of desire. What is it that we pursue? What is it that we love, that we savor, that we want? What do you want? Again, maybe it's focus on personal happiness. Not an intrinsically bad thing, but when it becomes the focus of everything in our lives then suddenly we're sort of challenged again by Jesus in Mark chapter 8. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what is it that that drives you? What do you want? And if you want the kingdom, if you savor Christ and desire him and his grace, what does that look like in your actions? And how should it shape your actions? something to think about. And so then we get to the latter half of this chapter, starting in verse 20. We have a shift here. We notice a shift. He goes from the Gentiles, not walking as the Gentiles walk. He says, but you, but you. Now we have this beginning passage here. It's kind of tough to translate. It says something like this, but you did not so learn the Christ. That's kind of the best translation that sort of gets all the nuance that's going on there. Something like, on the contrary, you didn't come to know Christ that way. Now, he's already set us up for this, right? In chapter 3, verse 19, he prays for the believers that they may know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So he's ending by setting up an opposition, an opposition And that opposition depends on your understanding of your knowledge of Christ. Paul emphasizes your knowledge is not just of the Christ, but is the love of Christ, which which surpasses knowledge. And it fills us with the fullness of God. Back to that emphasis, his primary message on love here, the primary message of Ephesians. Coming to know Christ, in other words, for the apostle, is not just gaining a bunch of facts and information and knowledge about doctrine. It's not mere intellectual assent. Paul, notice, he's shaping your desire. He's asked you the question, what do you want? What do you love? What do you savor? And now he's beginning to shape that for you. Coming to know Christ is not just intellectual assent. Now, doctrine is a part of it, right? But knowing Christ is having him as, as Charles Hodge says, the object of our supreme love and confidence. It's about finding Christ and desiring him and seeking him. We can have intellectual knowledge of who the Christ is and still follow the desires of the world. We can have intellectual assent as to to the person of Jesus and still follow the course of the world. But when you know him in love, then you desire him. 
then it is your love. That is what you savor and what you seek. And that's what you pursue. When you know him in love, then that begins to replace the desires of the world. The purely sensual pursuits that just lead to futility. They don't get you anything. And the reason then is found in verse 21. Literally, something like, if indeed. Not if as in uncertainty, but it's a rhetorical if. It's kind of like this. If you want to win, then you ought to practice, right? The assumption is that you all want to win, so you ought to be practicing. Paul has been telling us all along, right? He's been going through this letter, continually emphasizing the fact that your status, or I'm sorry, your salvation is grounded in your status. You are, uh, is grounded in your faith in Christ. You are a believer, not because of what you've done, but because Jesus loved you so much. And if that is indeed the case, then you ought to follow him. Not, it's not that you've been taught about him, not that you've been taught by him, not that you've been taught how to live a good life. You have been taught in him or in communion with him. Paul takes it back to that idea of unity in Jesus, that intimate connection between who you are and what you know or who you are and what you love. What is it that you desire? And what is it that you love? Is it the pursuit of this world? Is it the pathway that the Gentiles walk on? Or is it the pathway that Christ has placed you on? And so now with this recognition, Paul says, look at your former life. Don't just look at the actions that you did, the things that you were forgiven for, the sins you committed, but look at your desire, your focus, where you stood and put off the old self. That former way of life, that former way of desiring the exaltation of the self, because that was part and parcel with that old self. The old self is dead, he says, but we all know it doesn't want to be dead. We all know that it wants to remind you and it wants to prod you and it wants to push you in the direction to go back on to that path. It wants to tell you what the good life is. And so the answer to that, says Paul, is be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Here we find the answer to the futility of mind in verse 17. Instead of following the Gentiles in the futility of mind, we are called to renewal. And renewal is gradual, but it's moving toward a goal. Notice the combination of spirit and mind here. Mind clearly matters for the apostle. Doctrine matters. Who Jesus is matters. But that is part of a whole. It's about you and your love and your desire. What is it that you want is the question. Do you want Jesus? Do you love him? Do you savor him and do you seek him? And as our old self is put off, the new self is put on. And we must constantly strive to be renewed in that new self. So really, the call for the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 is a call to a constant reflection on where our desires lie. Do we lust after the deceit of sin? And at times, we, always, we all listen to it. We need to be reminded that it's because we seek after that and we can't but help on our own merits, on our own abilities, but to follow the lusts of the self because we want to control the world, right? Left to ourselves, we want the throne of God. We want to pursue it just as Adam did. 
But it's Christ who's rescued us out of that and put us on a new path. Are the old man's lusts always still creeping back in? What do we live for? What drives our decisions? Is it fame of the self? Is it promotion and money and pleasure and leisure? What is it that we love? Paul is calling us here to a life that desires Christ, a life that desires his kingdom. And so how do we do that? I think step one, we, we stop and we reflect on our actions, our desires, our decisions, rather, our decisions and what those are reflecting about our desires. What do our decisions tell us about what we desire, what we love? And then secondly, after we become introspective, after we think about our own lives, then we fall back on our union with Christ. We love Jesus more. We know him more. We find himself in his word, in fellowship with his body, in communion with his saints, in prayer and in conversation with your God. Now there's definitely too much in this passage to finish. But after Paul lays out the paradigm, the framework, asking you the question, what is it that you desire? You already know your focal point of life. It's love, love for others because Jesus has loved you. What is it then that you desire? And then he goes in to a whole slew of things, decisions, actions in our life that he tells us to, to move away from in verses 25 through 32. And so in closing, I would encourage you, when you go home tonight, maybe as a family, sit down and read those together. Verses 25 through 32, and ask the question to yourself, to one another, what is it that I love? Reflect on what Paul says are actions that accompany this change of desire. And find ways that you can encourage one another in this action. So what is it about love about desire that's so powerful, that drives us, that moves us, that leads us to do crazy things sometimes, to pack ourselves up in boxes and ship ourselves to our fiancé. What would cause us to do that, right? What is it about love inside ourselves? And we all know the feeling. We've all been in love before, and have you ever tried to tell a young couple that's in love that they're making a bad decision or something like that? doesn't work, right? We've all been in that position and we've felt that drive, that push, that, 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 that push of love. What is it about love? That, why is it so powerful? Maybe, just maybe, the reason why we feel that way when we're in love, maybe the reason why we feel that pull and that tug of that emotion, maybe, maybe that's intended to drive us to Christ, Maybe that love is intended to show us the magnificence of God and how much he loves us and how he acted on that. Maybe love makes us crazy for a reason. Maybe it's to make us crazy about Jesus, to drive us towards Jesus, to to desire him more than anything and to shape our actions in light of that desire, not a merely intellectual assent but an emotional drive to our Savior. You see, the problem is when we step out and we commit and we say, I'm not going to walk on that path anymore. I'm going to stay away from the path of the Gentiles. It's frequently the case 
that we get drawn back. And we will, and you will. You'll stumble in this. You'll fall back. See, the the only way that we can redirect our love, the only way that we can redirect our desire, and the only reason why we can, is because God loved you. Because he's forgiven you. Because he has showered you with grace and mercy. And he's known that you will stumble. He's known that you will fall. And he's known that you will drift to that path sometimes. And for that reason, he sent his son to come into this world and to enter the eye of this storm and to be consumed by people who wanted to kill him and didn't want him to receive the glory that was due him. It was for that reason that God came into this world and became... A man, because he saw you on that path of the Gentiles, and he loved you and wanted to rescue you from that. And so he did. And he did all of the work that is necessary. And he has pulled you off of that path. He's given you a new man. It was a pure gift, it was nothing you deserved. But he loved you so much and he placed you on the pathway of righteousness and he encourages you. And he says, keep walking on this pathway of humility, of gentleness, of love. Keep following the light that I've shown to you. And when you stumble and when you fall and when you drift back on, God is there to catch you and to pick you back up and to put you back on that path and to say, I've got you. Because Christ did the work. Because Christ walked the pathway all the way up to the cross. That's why we can walk on the pathway of righteousness. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, our God and our Savior, we come to you and we are thankful Lord, for saving us. We're thankful, Lord, for the goodness and the mercy that you've bestowed upon us. We're thankful, Father, that you have redeemed us out of the pit of death and that you have placed us on the pathway of righteousness, Lord, and we pray that you will sanctify us. God, we believe and help our unbelief. Remind us every day of your forgiveness. And may we not be built up in pride. May we not be built up depending upon our own merits, depending upon our own righteousness, but may we always and always look to you and your righteousness. And Father, we pray that you will shape our desires and we pray that we will love you more and more today. Give us rest, Father. We thank you for this and we thank you for this time together and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted King of heaven and earth. Amen.